Starring John Cho, Parker Posey, and Haley Lou Richardson, Columbus is the debut feature from Kogonada, whose video essays have been featured by the Criterion Collection. Columbus opens Friday, August 4th, at New York's IFC Center and LA's New Art Theater, presented by Sundance Institute. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles, plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. Hello and welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital producer. On Wednesday evening, we presented an advanced screening of Good Time at the Film Society of Lincoln Center with directors Josh and Benny Safdie, co-writer Ronald Bronstein, and star Robert Pattinson. Editor Nicholas Rapold moderated the post-film discussion, which includes insights into the creative team's dynamic New York shoot and approach to storytelling. The recording begins with Nick asking a question and then Josh answering. This is the third time I've watched it and the movie moves just as much as, as, as it did the first and second times. It's just, there's so much energy in it. There's also so much going through your head when you watch it. I was just reading your tweet about Howard Stern that he said, I've been watching this guy. Our Oscars. I've been watching this guy and he doesn't make a dime. You know, he's like, he commits 87 crimes and doesn't make a single dime. He's a very complex character. I mean, how did you discuss this character with, with Robert? You know, I mean, how did you pitch this as a character? Because he has some unsavory sides to him. The French, no matter what the movie is, what the, what the movie's about, the main character is just simply the hero, which I think is telling. I, I, when we first talked to, when, when Rob first, you know, started the communication, we just, he, it wasn't, there wasn't a movie, there wasn't good time, there wasn't, we were, you know, on a highway towards this other movie called Uncut Gems, and there was, you know, it's been a long time, basically, trying to make this movie for about five, six years. And there's been these roadside attractions, like, oh, let's get off and make Heaven as well, let's get off and make Land of Coke. And then there's this like massive sign saying mandatory detour. And it was like Rob's email saying like, hey, let's do something together. And you know, there, again, there was no project. So we, I had a, I was just reading Executioner's song by Norman Mailer for the first time and it was, you know, it's just perfectly in line with a, an ongoing obsession with the American criminal and the prison uh, ethos in America. And, and uh, Ronnie and I just recently downloaded every episode of Cops, uh, <laughs> and we were devouring those. An American classic. A best American TV show, hands down. <laughs> and uh, the brother book, In the Belly of the Beast, and, and at the same time, these two guys broke out of prison upstate New York, Richard Mann, David Sweat, and we were watching basically the country root for two guys who, who ran over people on purpose with a car and uh, murders. And, and uh, yeah, so we just kind of, and we all kind of agreed we wanted to make a movie that was dangerous, a movie that was pulp. And, and that was kind of how it began. And then the conversation grew and we ended up writing a really, we trying to learn the characters, so we started writing his backstory. And the backstory was arguably harder to write than the screenplay because it was minute one of, life to minute one of the movie. What is his backstory, if you could flesh it out? 
backstory is in a nutshell, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you guys remember details, you too, Rob, is that he says this in the movie. He says that he alludes to it a, a, a couple times that his father's, his father's died, uh, and he lives with, and the mother is estranged, issues with, with uh, substance abuse. And they live with their grandmother, Nick and, and Connie. And I'm not going to go through everything. <laughs> what is the capsule summary? I'll, I'll, go, I'll go to some of the landmarks of his life. What's his favorite color? You want me to paraphrase? Paraphrase. Yeah, I, I'd rather hear, I, I'm talking a lot about this movie. I'd rather hear Ronnie paraphrase it. Just don't forget about the uncle's the car dealership. I might, I might forget about that. I might forget about that part. Essentially, he grows up with a very, you know, in this hostile sort of negative environment. Uh, living with his uh, brother and his grandmother. Um, he's angry and he takes his anger out on the brother. He's vicious, he's malicious, he's quite violent and just generally uh, cruel to his younger brother. They end up sort of um, splitting up. You know, he's forced to leave the house. He goes down a bad road, he ends up in prison. In prison he has a kind of, um, I guess it's a kind of enlightenment, you know, I don't know if it comes from reading the Bible and running across Joseph, but he suddenly sort of fancies himself as this kind of provider, that he has a mission, that he has, that his sort of purpose in life, which he's never sort of felt before, is to reconnect with this brother. And that's what he does, he ends up sort of writing letters and he sort of turns the brother against the grandmother in an attempt to sort of fortify a bond that wasn't sort of built organically. And uh, when he is let out of prison, his plan, and it's kind of a nitwit plan that's sort of borrowed, you know, from basically from bad movies, you know, is that he's going to get his brother out of the city, which he thinks is a toxic environment, away from the grandmother and, and, um, and into the woods. He has no relationship with the woods. I mean, it's really a thoughtless, <laughs> thoughtless idea. And, you know, and that's sort of where the movie begins. And we actually, we actually had emails. Rob would email me as letters from jail. In character. Yeah, in character, and then I would respond as Nick, and then Ronnie and Josh would see those emails, and it would just kind of be this kind of backstory that we would have, where I, he had the experience of trying to turn and understand how to talk to Nick, and Nick had the experience of having to reacquaint with this guy who he hated, and just all of that complication was built into both of the characters, and then that informed the writing and all this. And I mean, and Rob, how do you approach a character like that? I mean, a, a part, part of it, part of the way it looks in this movie is every, you take every single, it seems like you approach every exchange like you're calculating a little, like how, what does this person want? How can I get, make happen what I need to make happen right now? Uh, so yeah, what, what, what's your thought process for each of these scenes? I mean, I think he just, he's someone who thinks that, I mean, really simply that the, the world is against him and every single minute of the day is just, a problem that has to be dealt with and, and it's just it's just a never-ending series of problems and there's but there's no particular aim there's no I mean it seems like it's really it's you know he's doing it all for a purpose but it's just I think he only sees it as problem solving it's just con I think that's where his propulsiveness comes from in a way it's just like the world is constantly hitting him rather than uh, him having some kind of end goal in mind and, uh, did you want to no, I was just going to point out that Ronnie deliberately left out the uncle's car dealership. <laughs> <laughs> Key detail. Well, I mean, what is it like shooting this movie? Because you watch and you get the sense that it's just, at any given time, the real police might bust in, <laughs> you know, in any of the stories. There were a handful of real police in the movie. Oh, really? Yeah. I, so they were busting in because we asked them to be in the movie. <laughs> so we invited them. Yes. Well, it, it's, it's interesting you say that because we, for the, the New World Mall, 
we were able to get that location and secure that location, but we shot it as if we were stealing the shot. So even though we had full, we had a detailed cop there telling like, don't hit anybody when you're running, like that's the only rule he gave us. We still set up the cameras as if we were gonna steal it when we ran in. So it's like, if we get caught, we at least have the two shots. And then of course we went back and the other. And the cops are looking at us like, you, you know, why are you <laughs> moving around so surreptitiously? You have the location. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just second nature to us. You know, you, you kind of put that out there in the, in, in the air and, and it, it comes back to you in interesting ways. I mean, we threw in our casting, you know, from, from, I mean, Rob, we basically tried to turn him into a street casted, you know, character with writing, with developing his background so obsessively. Same thing with Jennifer and, and a lot of the actors in the movie, the first time actors, are um, adding, they, you know, they come with no baggage so there's no preconceived perceptions of who these people are. So, you're, and they feel, they can pull at any moment from their life of, of character development, essentially. They are, they've been developing that character their entire lives. So, and you take that, that concept and you put it up against, you know, a moviegoer sees, you know, Robert Pattinson or Jennifer Jason Lee or even Barkhad Abdi, who I think completely disappears into his role. And it, it, something's happening there. There's a chemical thing happening that I think speaks to what you're, you're saying. Like, you feel at any moment the cops could oh, yeah. break into the movie. And, we, and when I said there are real cops in the movie, like, there, there are real cops in the movie. The guy in the hospital? Or, no. The guy in the hospital is actually a character actor, Robert Clohessy. And I pride myself that that day we had... Robert Clohessy and Craig Mum Sims, who were both on Oz, which was like the only other TV show that I've really ever seen, and, and uh, they were—they said they had never been in a on a set since the TV show. So I was no, but there were like you know the police montage, the the rapid fire police montage. There are a couple of real cops in that scene. There are you know in the jail sequence that the the shaped head, white shaped head, so correctional officer. He was the correct the commissioner of jails of New York City about two months before we started shooting is when he stepped down and now he's running prisons in Nevada. He just let the juice loose. And, 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 no, but there's, but my point is that we're peppering throughout. I mean, and, and you know, and a lot of the inmates in, in jail, you know, are, are friends or, or, or friends of friends or people who we met, the, the casting department met through halfway houses and, and, um, and, and they're basically dictating the blocking of a scene. They're saying, no, actually, it wouldn't happen this way. And the riot wouldn't happen that way. Well, no, it, 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 there was a moment in, this, in, the, in, the, uh, in the jail where we had created this feeling in there where a riot actually basically broke out amongst everybody. It was just it, this, this feeling of, of uh, like oppression and just every, the heat just overcame everybody. And there was, it just it devolved into this chaos that we that at one point we were just trying to capture and then of course we went back and got into it but that one of the things that was very new to us was okay now we have we have all these locations we have permission to be here we have a bigger crew how do we still keep the energy from some of the movies we've done in the past how do we keep that kind of feeling within it and you know, there's lots it goes of back to that element of danger and and pulp and i think all great genre movies that i've always responded to we're, we're, you know, by, just by nature of, of being kind of without moral in a weird way, are reflections of the time. And, and I, you know, I hope and I, I believe as a viewer, when I can actually sit and watch the movie, that I feel that this movie is a reflection of this time. Yeah. And, and Rob, what's, what's it like working in that environment of danger? <laughs> to pose a melodramatic question. <laughs> 
because it's not like it's you know stolen shots. It's less like like uh, you know, let's say Lost City of Z, which is another movie, a fantastic movie. You know, everything has to be really planned and worked in the jungle. And so that wasn't that it wasn't oh, planned at all. Was we we went there the wrong season. The rainy season. We only shoot like two hours a day. So you wanted something safer like this movie. Did. <laughs> yeah, I remember talking to you while you were on set, and you were like, ah, "We might cut out any second. The towers are falling down. The cars are falling apart." But uh, uh, no, uh, uh, I don't know. I think I think. With this, it definitely the environment they create really go. It's really helpful for performance. I mean, it's just you know, you, it's it, it's a chaotic mood within the the world of the movie is very chaotic, and it kind of to have to have that level of energy just induced all the time. And then, but also, I've always felt with all of their movies, it's very they feel very frenetic, but they also feel incredibly controlled and detailed, and you know that is their kind of unique skill um and that's kind of what i what i wanted to be involved with yeah and i'm, I'm going to kind of out you as a as an extraordinary cinephile you seem to watch a ton of movies so i'm sure you watched well i mean i don't know you you would watch this no fear no die claire denis movie which i don't even think is available on, on dvd uh, i found out and um but I, so you must have seen some of their other movies like heaven knows what as well and, and Dang long legs at some point. I, before I met them, no, I hadn't Not seen them. Oh, no, I, had no, it. No. I only saw them afterwards. Did um, you regret it when you watched it? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I do, I like that. I mean, that's the other part which I like to, it's very, very difficult, especially, I think there's very few people who can successfully make anti-hero characters. And like, I just feel like, you know, if you look at Daddy Longlegs, for instance, I mean, it's kind of, all of the movies, all of your movies kind of have that same, Lead where you are, you know, we were talking about it earlier um, in Daddy Longlegs when you <laughs> both of you say, like, you know, you don't know, you don't know whether you're supposed to be rooting for this guy or not. And it's like, no. I love, I love them always. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Oh, yeah. It's like, it's to all intents and purposes, it's like, of course you're not supposed to be rooting for these characters. Like, you know, but it's like, there's some kind of alchemy that they create where you're just like, oh, I want to support someone who's doing the wrong thing. Um, uh, it's kind of an interesting thing to play. And it also, it's, it's, it makes it, it gives you a lot of freedom in performance as well. Each one of these characters has a logic. It might not necessarily be the right logic, but it is something that you can follow and kind of move with. So even if the, he's doing terrible, terrible stuff, you can still understand where he's coming from in his thought process. It's not like you're watching an alien. So that's why you kind of find yourself moving along with them. Because I, well, I, th I think that Connie, you know, in the beginning, we introduce him as a hero, quite literally. Like he is, you know, and, and I very much see the movie from Connie's perspective at times. I understand, I can, I can have empathy almost, almost for, you know, for his perspective on, you know, the trappings of, uh, you know, bureaucratic system, you know, a, a, a citywide system that is literally looking to just turn Nick into another number. And, and, the, and the concept, you know, at, Let's say the name of the, what do we call the name? Crystal Vision is the name of this, the group, the societies that they think that they can change the brain from the outside. And Connie genuinely believes that you can't actually do that. The only way to change the brain is from the inside. And the only way to change it from the inside is through experience. And the only way to get experience is to kind of induce it at times. And that's why his idea, the idea of saying, hey, I can help trick my brother into being independent and being free. And I, I'm going to do it through teaching him that he can be independent. Is a great idea, 
His execution is maybe questionable. He needs some work. <laughs> yeah, like it's maybe he's a romantic in a way. So he's like, oh, I'm gonna rob a bank. It will rob banks because of movies. Basically, you can actually like you can rewind it all the way back to when we were doing Daddy Long Legs. You kind of paused us when we were looking at the script, and you're like, wait a second, this moment right here, you could lose the entire audience. And it was just I don't remember you. I remember like it hadn't even occurred to us that that was even a thing. When he drugs, yeah. <laughs> when he drugs the, when he drugs his kids, we're like, okay, let's just move. We're gonna then, then yeah. He, then he drugs his kids and he goes out and, and Ryan's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, you have to like take this as a serious. It's those moments where you, where you're putting the viewer in a spot, yeah. a, a genuine spot. Yeah. Well, I mean, all movies like that. There, I mean, you're caught up in the action. You're caught up in this great character study and, and, and absorbing everything. But there are a lot of other undercurrents going through there. I mean, there's sort of an interesting racial thing going on as well that he kind of takes advantage of in an interesting way, um, you know, the, the fact that, you know, when the police arrive and they see the security guard tied up, they, they obviously assume that he's done something wrong. And I'm kind of guessing it's, there's, yeah, he's playing a factor. I, yeah, of course, uh, you know, this movie takes place today. Uh, and, and, as, and when you're making a genre movie, uh, uh, specifically a kind of a thriller, a one-night, you know, cops are after you film, I guess I'll call it that, you know, you you're as an audience member and as a you know as a creator, you're kind of saying you're constantly putting a, the viewer in a position of oh would would you the plausibility would that happen could you get away with this and as writers we found ourselves like a stream of conscious you know we knew the characters really well and we you know write through the scenario and we would always if he got caught if we couldn't figure out a way to get Connie out of the scenario he would get caught and that would be the movie but we always did kind of survey you know, the scenario, and we thought about it as New York in 2017, and that moment is definitely like, yeah, it's, it's, we, it's a, it's a strange, it's a strange thing to think that it's plausible, and it's totally plausible as a viewer, you just roll with it, and the fact that we roll with it, we should be thinking about that, because to the fact that two white cops walk in to a amusement park in the middle of the night, and first of all, Connie, who, you know, more or less looks like a scumbag, is, but he's, you know, a white scumbag and, and, you know, is just telling them, you know, that this man on the floor and they just take it as fact. And like you think if the, if the situation was switched, would that be necessarily the case? I don't know. And then when the scene following, scene immediately following it is the only two people who are detained are the two black people in the scene and, and they're the innocent ones. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's our DP, like I, he, he cried in that moment, and, I, and he was like, oh, it's so emotional. And I, he said it was for a different reason, but I, I don't know. I think that it, it was for the other, for another. But just a, that's a good moment. Just a shout out for the DP, Sean Price Williams, yeah. who does amazing work. Um, I mean, it must be even, even hard while doing the movie to know that it would come out looking that beautiful in a way. I mean, it's almost like, did you look at it and think, oh, this looks too good, you know, because it's, it's, cause it's no, very No, I fast. always want it to look better. I mean, you can always do better, always. But <laughs> we want it, we definitely were going... But I, I'm the well, fault of no, so the, 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 the we, were, we were definitely looking to motivation in very extreme places to the point where Sean would look at us and there'd be like a little red light coming from the doorbell and he'd be like, do you want to motivate the scene with that lighting? We're like, yeah, it's not a bad idea. You know, we, we were really going crazy with the colors. No, and he, and he had a, you know, a very specific, you know, one of the more conceptual conversations we had. He was like, yeah, once he gets his brother off of his brother off of the out of the hospital onto the accessor ride, that's when the film enters kind of a surreal 
kind of rabbit hole and the colors start to get a little more twisted and, and things start to look a little bit stranger. Yeah. And, and that was, and he was very deliberate about that because it's a lot of fluorescent, you know, kind of office-like lighting up until then. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it just, it looks, looks amazing. And he knew, but he also knew, he's like, look, I, I was like, listen, I, I want to make a popcorn movie. Like we always think of our movies as, as being blockbusters and uh, that's not funny, that's not funny. And I'm not joking, I'm still not joking. Uh, uh, but I, you know, we, we you know, consider, uh, you know, this movie like a piece of termite art. You know, it's like a, a movie that you can be entertained by and, and, and basically inject it. And you're just watching and coming closer and closer to the edge of your seat. And then at the end when you get home, you realize these termites have found their way in and they've kind of burrowed into your, into your soul and then you start thinking like, well, what did that mean and why did this happen? And why did I feel this way about that character? And, and you know, and of course we get blessed with the king of termite art at the end of the movie with the Iggy Pop song, so, right, you know. That's a termite, I think, Ronnie, did you coin termite art? Did you come no. up with that? That's, no, that's, that's from a famous essay. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Written by, I don't read. It's, you know. It's, it's not how, who you steal from, it's how you use it. Right? No, I, just, I never claimed ownership of it, I just said it. But yeah. Uh, I was just about to talk about New York, uh, but I, uh, I thought that, because you're both New Yorkers, right? Yes. You grew up in New York. And, um, so, I mean, what was it like to kind of rediscover and, and, and rediscover the city in this way of locations? And... Well, I, the, it's interesting coming from the last film, Heaven Knows What, which was based in, based off of reality. So each location, was kind of tied to the main actress's emotional state. So there were certain points that had to be in a certain area or it had to be on a certain stoop. There was not as much leeway to, to really explore the city in the same way. You could explore this environment, but things were very specific to her, to her head space and locations then in turn affect acting. So we needed to be true to that. Here, we had a lot more leeway because we could literally go and create something completely new. And we could go and look at the iconic locations all around the city that aren't the Empire State Building. You know, the, it was really sad. We went to go look at the, the bank, which we thought was this beautiful place that had been there for a while. And they had completely torn down the whole front, the facade, which had this beautiful- What about the Mangarito? That whole building is gone. And the bronze wall is gone. Yeah, and then the entire, that where, he, where Rob runs away from, from Nick and where he, they get out of the Mangarito, that whole building is just, Gone. This is two months ago. You know, the whole city is literally just like collapsing. Two months ago, but yeah. But no, that's what they said. They tore the building down. It was oh, two yeah. months ago. Sorry, sorry. So, it's just you keep chasing it. But then it, what? What the idea is that there will be new neighborhood landmarks. And I guess in this film we were trying to discover them and yeah. keep keep with that idea. I just like the ability to to create from the ground up. You know, there was something nice. There was a freedom that was back. Personally, the, the big thing. For, remember when we were writing, we went to Adventureland. Yeah, but we grew up all, you did as well, right? Going to Adventureland. Adventureland is like, it's an independent amusement park uh, <laughs> in Farmingdale, New York. But it's, you know, it's, a, it's there. It's right, you know, it's not that far from the city. And uh, it's, it's, I think it's only changed ownership once. And, but it, it's, it's been renovated a lot. Yes. Yeah, yeah well, that tree is gone. The, the tree, it was, I mean, we went there because yeah, there I go. remembered it as The tree, the haunted house tree, right? Exactly. Yeah. What did the what did the tree say? Chainsaw. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Chainsaws. I don't like chainsaws. 
and the, but a they still have between a, a tree and an owl animatronic. Yeah. And they had the, the throwing up guys. They still have them. It's kind of like buried <laughs> off to the side. But it was so cheap. And inside this haunted house, there were like just a album, Judas Priest album covers, yeah. just um, you know, taped to the wall. It was that. <laughs> so I mean, that's why we went out there. And then we went out there, and uh, and it was much nicer. Completely redone. Yeah, like but, it, but it was interesting to rediscover, you know, this thing as, you know, as a kid, it's massive, you know. And but you then it's, there, a it's a parking lot. But imagine if I mean, it was a no No, but imagine if there was a roller coaster in the middle of this room. That's kind of how it feels. You know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's very strange. And, and Rob, what was it like encountering each of these locations? I, I think they seem to offer a lot to you as an actor you can play off of. Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely everything. I mean, it's kind of. I didn't even really feel, it's funny because everyone's talking about how New York a movie it is and like my understanding of New York is like so different. I mean, it felt so alien and foreign. I mean, even watching the movie, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily think it's like, my first thought isn't like, oh, this is a New York movie. I mean, to me, the first time I saw it, it's like, it looks like a sci-fi movie. <laughs> like, but yeah, I mean, it's like, all of these areas, it's kind of, it's weird. I don't know why, right from the beginning, it just felt like, when you, I think when you're playing characters that are very, very, very fringe on the fringes of society, and you're not playing it, you're not playing them as film versions of those fringe characters, but genuinely fringe. It definitely does. It feels like you're an alien. It feels like you're in these. Like uh, I remember when we, even when we were doing the makeup tests, and uh, I was at Josh's apartment, and uh, it's when we first realized this. Uh, doing these like. Uh, acne scar things and I was just living around the corner and like it's like a nice area of Harlem like it's kind of you know I was like up until that point being like ooh where's the artisanal bakery or whatever <laughs> and then suddenly like when you I was walking around with basically trying to look like a crackhead and suddenly as soon when the as makeup was too extreme yeah it was like the first thing I was like a full-on crackhead <laughs> and I was like wandering around to see like how people how people how, you, how you're affected and just walking back the four or five blocks to my apartment, suddenly all these crack dealers come out and everyone's thinking you're trying to get a, this deal. And I've, been, I've been walking up and down the street with absolutely, not even seeing this alternate reality that was around me the entire time. And I think a lot of the time when we're shooting the movie, every single time I went to this location, like if you went as a normal person, you would have seen it as one thing. And if you went within the context of the movie, it felt very, very, very different. And I mean, and the kind of flip, interesting flip side to, to, to it is, is the unexpected kindness that your character keeps encountering, which I don't know, somehow for me is also woven into like city experience that a lot of it's really awful and, and, and loud and cruel, but then there's just like a understanding with people that somehow quickly happens. The one, the one thing I'll always say is everybody says, oh, New York is such a mean place, but if, if your car gets stuck in the snow, you'll see how many people will, will come in and help you push it out Zero. in some way. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, first, I'm the first guy there, and then there's like three people behind me push it out of the stove. It's just like, but then you just go on with your day. You know, there's some, there is something to that. But in addition to just, we also don't treat the city with, with like white gloves on. You know, we're treating it as if we've lived here and grew up here. And it's like, I remember walking up Fifth Avenue on like 25th Street, and I saw this whole group of people crowd around. I'm like, what is everybody doing? Like, I was getting very angry, pushing through everybody. And then I turned around, there's the Empire State Building. They're all stopping to take pictures of the Empire State Building. But like, I could, wasn't even in my head, you know. Oh, yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, I want to give the audience to uh, ask a few questions. Uh, so if uh, you have any questions about the film. You 
guys started off, it felt like there was such a relationship with the, those two brothers. I wanted to know exactly what the hell was the backstory. That's the thing that grabbed me from throughout the entire movie. All I wanted to know is, what the hell was going on there? Is it up nice and men? What's, what's, what's that thing that, you know, you guys managed to portray it really on point. That, that grabbed me, so that made me a fan. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we did, we kind of despise exposition, and uh, it's just I'm never really that interested in it when it's being told to you, uh, when it's being spoon fed to you. And I think what you're what you're feeling is you're when you see the tip of the iceberg and you know that there's a massive one underneath the water, and that goes into all the work that they that that we all did in the writing and and um, and their performance. It gave me the opportunity to really fill it in, you know. For exactly. Myself. Benny likes to talk about. Yeah, it, you know. it's like if you see somebody on the street and you start, you're like, "Oh my God, that guy, look, that guy or girl looks interesting." You start following them from that point on. You have to fill in the blanks, and that process of filling in the blanks is so exciting because if they lie, you see how they lie. If they tell the truth, you see how they tell the truth, and that, on top of everything else, makes the narrative more interesting because you're learning about somebody and you have like little. You'll, 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 you'll grasp for the littlest kind of glimmer that you get from them. Yeah. I, I do believe that audience, that a viewer likes to take ownership uh, of, a, of, a, of a movie and they like to be engaged with it in that way. And I think that allows, you know, by not being so overt about things, it allows for that. But we did, we did do a lot of stuff together, like weird little, we, like we went to that garage for like, it was like eight hours, but I just kind of tagged along as Nick and he was there talking to the guys who worked at this auto shop. I felt as Nick, the, the circle was including me at first in the conversation, people would look at me and talk to me. But then as they realized my limitations, the circle just kind of closed and just pushed me off to the side. But I was still there and, it, Rob, and Rob as him, as like just being Connie, had to know what it was like to have a brother who is developmentally disabled, and that's just what's going to happen when you take him somewhere. You, know, you can't just take him somewhere. So there were a lot of things that we did that just kind of sat in our heads. Um, one of those things was the emails, you know, that were, I kind of got angered by certain things he said to me, or you know, there, was, there, were, there was one email where I remember I got really upset with you about even trying to talk to me again. It was, it was pretty insane. Yeah, I mean, and also, I mean, Following up on Josh's comment about a sort of uh, aversion to overt, you know, exposition. You know, it's that feeling, it's a tricky thing, you know, because then when you're doing so much background work and you're really attempting to inject as much nuance as possible into a piece of work, you're accumulating so much data that you can put into the film, you can put it into the script, you can put it into the performance, you can put it into the edit, but at the same time, there's a kind of... Um, we're all sort of share the same kind of value system where we don't want anything to be in the movie if in a kind of garish way it feels like it's only there for the benefit of orienting the audience. And we're constantly looking to sort of pull that stuff back. So then it becomes interesting because for us it's hard to say. We know through some kind of form of osmosis this background information is there and it's being communicated, but it's hard to pinpoint exactly when. I mean, in the case of you say of mice and men or the brother relationship, you know, I think there are things in the movie that um, that would make a viewer doubt how close they really are and how well he really knows his brother, you know? But their exchanges, I mean, really we're limited to just these exchanges in the beginning. So what's there, you know? What is it that's communicating that? Because it is there, it's sort of hovering around, you know, in a meaningful way, you know, in terms of how you read the movie. How well does he know this guy? How, 
how deep is his concern for him? You know, he's kind of a monomaniac. You know, is this just something? He's not a very, he's a very self-centered human. So, you know, how, how deep does it run? And, you know, his sort of empathy and sympathy for this other person. I don't know. What's he getting out of this? You know? We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Starring John Cho, Parker Posey, and Haley Lou Richardson, Columbus is the debut feature from Coconata, whose video essays have been featured by the Criterion Collection. Set in Columbus, Indiana, which boasts some of the country's most significant mid-century architecture, the film follows recent high school grad Casey, who lives with her mother, and Jin, a visitor from the other side of the world. Columbus opens Friday, August 4th, at New York's IFC Center and LA's New Art Theater. Tickets are on sale now. Check ColumbusTheMovie.com for more info. Presented by Sundance Institute. Now you can stream critically acclaimed films and cult favorites from the world's greatest film libraries with Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection. Filmstruck brings you a bounty of independent and foreign titles, updated weekly, plus original bonus material and expert commentary. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free 14-day trial today at filmstruck.com. Yeah, there, just, there are a number of relationships like that where you're kind of trying to think it through and, and figure out where, where it ultimately will, will head. I mean, uh, we should also mention Jennifer Jason Lee's character, which is a great, you know, performance you flop in. Then. Yeah. <laughs> um, that relationship is also just... And, and then her with her mother, you know. But you know, I, I'm sorry. Played by Rose Gagarin. Uh, you know what's interesting, again, as far as just this aversion to narrative exposition, if you really think, like, to get an inside window into that Jennifer Jason Lee, that entire section, you know, is that, you know, from a writing point of view, Josh and I, like, no scene can exist if its only purpose is to, and primary purpose, is to move the narrative forward. You know, that's sort of a rule. It just grosses us out. If, uh, there's no way, because there's no way to inject nuance into that. And, you know, we, we tried it up. We tried it. I mean, the whole purpose of the bail scene, right, if you really think about it from a structural writing point of view, is that we need some way to communicate that the brother is in the hospital. And Where is he going to find that? He's not going to find that out by calling the jail. You know, it's not going to make it to the newspapers. So it has to be, well, that's where we landed on this bail scene. But then we originally wrote this scene that was just him going. I mean, it was essentially the whole scene was just waiting for the bail bond to drop this information. And we were so kind of humiliated by the results that, um, that really the Jennifer Jason Lee is really kind of a big elaborate smoke and mirrors. It's a way to create a kind of internal drama and tension that's really just there to distract you so that we can slip in this bit of narrative information which is entirely essential for the forward progression of the movie in without you even realizing how um, lame it is. You know what I mean? And then, and then, you, then, then you layer that onto like, yeah, the, the, that then in turn makes the editing so much more complicated because yeah. you have now five different conversations that are happening at once too. Like there's so many different perspectives that are crossing and character relationships are changing, who's above, who's below. And it just made, it's, we were literally making our lives so difficult just to get that oh, point and, Yeah, and we're, you know, not to oppose that, but the only thing that's something is like, I really, really wanted after we watched this thing, I really wanted to see Connie's, it was like a thing early in the script that we ditched, Connie's girlfriend. And then you, you know, you were like, all right, we'll give you the Connie's girlfriend. And, uh, but it's, yeah, I wasn't interested, and he was, so, you know. Um, <laughs> and I had, and, and yeah. this smoke and mirror, and the writing an insane backstory, and, you know, that was my pitch to Jennifer, uh, who is one of my favorite actresses, uh, who literally disappeared into the role, and then actually disappeared into the movie. 
Like, she just never comes back. But, she, but like, it's, she's incredible. She's, she, really, she really, like, understood this idea of, of someone who, who really hangs on Connie as kind of a catalyst for, you know, her own life of despondence and living with her mother. Trivia note is that uh, the mother was played by Rosie Agario, who is an actress and the widow of Ulu Grossbard, who made the movie Straight Time, which is, you know, a little bit of an inspiration of this movie. Oh, that's a great movie. Yes. Eddie Bunker. Thank you. Um, you had mentioned Iggy Pop earlier, and uh, the end sequence where his track was featured really added to the poignancy of it. How did that collaboration come about? So D Daniel, one of tricks point never, the, the composer, we had spent about nine weeks doing the score <coughs> religiously, like Thanksgiving, New Year's, Christmas, you know. Uh, and we had, you know, a handful of music. We always thought that the ending would have a piece of music that was licensed. It was a pre-existing piece. And we tried a lot of different ones and they never really worked. And we realized that we have such a bespoke score um, and it's and such a powerful one that we had to, we had to continue that uh, kind of tradition with the film. And, and uh, so Dan wrote a piano-based piece and, and put a vocal track over it. And he said, you know, we all agreed that there should be vocals on it, but it's tough because there's dialogue in the scene. And, and he was like, you know, I was like, well, who, who, who could do the vocals for a song like this? And he's like, I don't know. How about Iggy Pop? And I was like, how about Frank Sinatra? <laughs> honestly, it just doesn't, it seemed ridiculous of an idea. And he's like, no, 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 seriously, I think he might like the movie. I can get to him this, that. So we, we showed him the movie. He really liked the movie. And uh, he said, yeah, I would like to sing on this track. And he wrote the lyrics. We didn't know any of them going into the recording session. I didn't know anything. Never actually spoke to him until we were in the session. And then he just said, hey, I have some stuff I want to sing, and I have some spoken word bits that I want to say. And it was like a sound of God, voice of God. It was, it was incredible. And he is the king of termite art. And, and he really, he's such a poet. And he really, really blessed this movie with a beautiful interpretation of it. Like, he genuinely saw the movie from Connie's point of view and Nick's point of view. And he gave us the pure and the damned. Like, he really gave that to us. And I, I think if there's any uh, justice, that guy deserves an Oscar for that song. I really believe that. I think he's, it's incredible. And just, and what was so hard about finding the right music there is that when you hear music at the end of a movie, you immediately think, okay, the movie's over. When the credits roll, you think the movie's over. You can get up and leave. But there was a lot of stuff that we still wanted the audience to experience that was important. So we kept trying to think, what could it be? You know, what could actually get there? And I think everything we tried always had a signifier, like, okay, this is this this is the end, this is the end, or and it just didn't work. But when Iggy added his voice to it, it almost acts like a narrator from above. And it keeps you in your seats, listening and watching, and there's perfect pauses for certain questions, and it just allows you to experience the ending how we wanted it to be. You know, you can actually see the crossing of the room through to the end, even though when the credits roll and he does start engaging, you can leave. But that's what was, it was, it's, it was nice to have a piece of music that didn't end the film, but just kind of existed with the film to its proper end. Yeah, ending with him saying, well, the word, the movie actually ends with the word love, but he, yeah. and, and that petting the crocodile. Yeah, it ends with like, yeah, this, this beautiful Nick point of view, like, oh, I can go and pet the crocodiles. That'll be great. Hi there. Um, I was curious to hear a little bit about where the device of the mental ability came in to the storytelling. 
Uh, we'd end with an easy one. Take yeah. that one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, uh, several years ago, um, I was working on a different project, a project of my own, and Benny was one of the main um, actors I was working with, and we collaborated on this character. As a matter of fact, and that, well, so that first, that, that character comes from that project, which, you know, whatever, I don't know if it's that it didn't find funding or it just hit its natural sort of expiration date and became like spoiled milk, but I just gave up on it, and that, that character, you know, was always just sort of sitting around waiting, it had been so well developed, but at that point, Benny was kind of like a, like a pencil neck, you know, he was very skinny and, you know, he hadn't started working out yet, which he had been doing for another role. So it was, you know, when we, when Josh and I, you know, sat down to start writing this movie, we didn't really have two ideas to rub together. I mean, it was really just like, go. And then this, you know, Josh had brought to the idea that I know I wanted to start with a bank robbery. And it was like, well, how, you know, how do you infuse pathos into a bank robbery? He's like, well, okay, well, if you, if you partner yourself with a mentally handicapped person, that automatically to me just, that was very appealing. It was intriguing. I could work from there, you know? So the character was just grafted into the movie. And then that opening scene, you know, my wife's in the, in the audience right now. I, there's a version of that same scene between her and Benny. That's seven years ago. Seven years ago, that's almost identical. Not in tone. Um, because, yeah, Nick got but, much more angry and yeah, more... And he's much kinder, you know, and more of a paternal figure, the social worker. But, but, it, but that scene was taken and imported. To the point, even to the tear, down to the tear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we wanted the tear, like, when she, in that, that was like a 45-minute interview that we did, you know, it was just kind of this exam that I was taking with, with Mary, and it was, at one point she asked me a question, and I started crying, and it just, it just affected me, and I didn't know why, and it just happened, and then when we were going into making the movie, it was like, it's got to happen on the salt and water, that's when it's going to hit. The backstory of that character was essentially, you know, it was Nick if he had no brother, you know, and was just in this struggle, locked in the struggle with his grandmother who was worried about her mortality and could see that she was going, you know, at some point she was going to pass and, and she just had this, you know, she was providing for someone who had no way of taking care of himself. So she was trying to, you know, get him on, you know, social security disability and trying to get him indoctrinated into some system that could provide for him, you know, once she was gone. And that's really where this movie sort of picks up, except there's this brother that's now appeared to just sort of mess everything up. And there was, and there was also, it was a pretty, it was like a kind of a, uh, an aggressive character thing, because it was like, Ronnie's like, okay, I want you to go inside yourself and figure out your insecurities or your emotional limitations and... We just kind of took those and exaggerated them. And then, and the crazy thing is that remember we weren't going to. There's, there's, there's always, there is a, there's always something here that's kind of preventing me from crying, and like I can like. He I cries can in nearly every rehearsal. <laughs> seven years ago, he does. Yeah. Still, he cries every day. Uh, no, but but we remember we originally we were talking about casting we we were thinking about casting an actor with a, with real disability and we went very far down that path and and um, you know our casting department we were meeting with a lot of people that ended up being very helpful for Benny but we weren't it sounded like it was a game we were really thinking about it and then we realized that the movie was just too the, the schedule was too aggressive and and the scenarios were too kind of arduous to kind of work with someone with disability and it would have ended up being like, we would have had to manipulate someone to get a performance and get them to do things and that was not, not interested in that in any way. Morally, technically, there was just nothing interesting there. 
And then that, and then Benny was, because Benny the whole time was saying, like, I can do it. And we knew that. And then he ended up going in and doing an interview with the cast director to send to our financiers to prove to them that Benny could do it. And he went in and did an interview as Jordan Weissman, who is, uh, is basically tricked into going to meet a casting director, who the cast director is actually meeting him to play this character, Nick. So he's doing this interview as someone who's developed seven oh, years prior yeah. and kind of different looking. So the financiers saw it and they knew Benny. We went there, did the song and dance, got the you know, money for the movie. Like They knew who Benny was and that they're watching this thing and they just they can't actually place it. Like, oh, that is... That is no his Jordan. They there, was, there was just something. So, there was something very, for me, it was just interesting to go back to this character and just be like, okay, what would change about him? You know, what would happen? And yeah, like Ronnie said I was 150 pounds, and now I'm like 185. I put on more weight for this because I realized that look, if this guy looks stronger, it affects your opinion. It also affects the way people interact with him. If he can look, if he wants to do what he wants when he wants, and he physically can do that, that changes things. You know? You also put on some dad weight because your baby was born. Well, no, no, I, what, I, but I was, but that, that's true. But I was, I was actually, I, I was doing, I, I was, I was, I switched my exercise because I had, I had known how to gain weight for certain exercising. I know, I'm just, I know, I'm just saying. I had known, I don't, I because it was whatever. I was, I started taking, I started. He did. Eating. He said, I think he should be heavier. I was, yeah, I started eating a lot of whey. I, the eggs came back into the picture. It's not just a choice. Yeah. Hey, look, hey, look, I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm afraid that's all, all the time we have, but thank you. Thank you, you so everybody, much. for watching. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, sponsored by Columbus. Starring John Cho, Parker Posey, and Haley Lou Richardson, Columbus is the debut feature from Kogonada, whose video essays have been featured by the Criterion Collection. Columbus opens Friday, August 4th, at New York's IFC Center and LA's New Art Theater, presented by Sundance Institute. We're also sponsored by Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and is the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection. Filmstruck brings you a wealth of independent and foreign titles, along with original bonus material and expert commentary. And did I mention it's now available on Roku? Start your free 14-day trial today at filmstruck.com. The Film Comment Podcast is produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rippold and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine, or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, and Kindle at filmcomment.com slash app. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.